West Virginia University is a renowned Research One institution with over 200 graduate and professional programs to choose from. Find more information about how you can explore your passion at graduateadmissions.wvu.edu. Welcome to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond, a podcast supported by West Virginia University's Provost's Office of Graduate Education and Life. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Coronia, a teaching associate professor with the Department of English at West Virginia University. Today, I'll be speaking with associate wildlife biologist Hannah Clipp, a PhD candidate in the West Virginia Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit and Division of Forestry and Natural Resources at WVU. Hannah is an NSF Graduate Research Fellow and a WVU Ruby Fellow. Her doctoral research is focused on the effects of climate change and landscape scale forest management on bird communities in the Appalachian Mountains. She's co-written more than 10 peer-reviewed articles and earned over $300,000 in scholarships and fellowships during her entire academic career. An avid birder, Hannah has seen at least 570 different bird species in the U.S. Welcome, Hannah. I'm so glad to speak to you today. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am well. Thank you for asking. Let's dive right in. I want to start with the success that you've had earning fellowships and awards right from the beginning of your academic career. What pointers would you give potential graduate students and even undergraduate students as they apply for programs to make sure they are optimizing their opportunities? Yeah, yes. Generally, apply to any any scholarship or fellowship that you're eligible for. You you won't maybe get them all or probably most of them. But even just getting one makes all those hours spent on applications worth it. And don't be afraid of failure or rejection. It took me two tries to get the UDL scholarship, two tries to get the NSF. I wasn't selected at all for a bunch of other scholarships and opportunities. So you just, you have to put yourself out there and just understand that you're not going to get them all. And then for specifically for graduate students, for potential graduate students, definitely apply to the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, which is what I have, if you can, if you're in a STEM. This personal stipend is probably higher than most graduate programs will offer. And it gives you the freedom to kind of shape your own research. So you don't have to come in on a research program that's already been developed and kind of the directions already laid out, you can come in and and forge your own direction. So that's a a really good, really good opportunity, especially if you want that freedom to kind of shape your own research. Thanks, Hannah. What do you think is the most important part in terms of facing an application and sitting down and writing? Which part of it do you think might be the most important? I think the writing, I think writing skills are so critical. And I kind of credit those like that to some of my successes. I'm a pretty good writer. And so just being able to, you know, lay out your argument for why you deserve that fellowship or scholarship in an eloquent way, in a convincing way, I think is a really valuable skill. And even if maybe writing doesn't come like naturally to you, I would say, you know, have other people read your 
application material. If there's a writing resource center that you can go to, have them read it and help you. Because I think that that's probably one of the most persuasive things to be successful. Thank you, Hannah. As someone who works in the Department of English, I appreciate these words. <laughs> And I, and I help my undergraduate students. I mentor them through application processes. And I tell them all the time, it's a process. The first time you hand me a piece of writing, it's not done because we need to work on finding your voice. And that seems to be what you're saying is to be able to be convincing, you have to find your particular voice that makes you unique. Mm -hmm. for, for the NSF, since you applied for it twice, how many times do you think you wrote your materials? How many times did you do that? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Let's see, for the first time, so with NSF, there's your personal narrative and then there's your research plan. So the first time I applied was as a senior and I was working with, I was a, I was a senior at, at West Virginia University. So I was working with the Aspire office, which as an aside, cannot recommend them higher. They are amazing and awesome and deserve all my praise. I think, um, oh, a lot of drafts. And, and for the second time, second time was actually probably fewer drafts since I, you know, I had the meat of the content that I wanted and just needed to update and refine. I did change my research plan the second time and, and re rewrote that. So that went through a few, a few more revisions. But yeah, the first time, you know, you have to figure out like, how do you want to open? How do you want to have, what, what do you want as that hook? And then what is, how can you make the content tailored to what NSF is asking for? So yeah, it went through a lot of revisions. And like you were saying, the first draft does not have to be perfect and it won't be. And that's perfectly normal, perfectly fine. It'd be amazing if your first draft was ready to go. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. I try to tell students all the time that your first drafts are really part of your compost pile to get to the place of where your flowers come and that's your application, right? Yeah. Um, and it's really good to hear you talk about the process of that, that it's a process. And, and I like this idea of understanding that there's going to be a lot of rejection and you may get one thing out of 15 that you apply for, but that one thing is the thing that you need to get. So I really, I really appreciate that. What's the one thing... Hannah, that you wish you'd known when you started graduate school that might be helpful for incoming graduate students or people who are contemplating graduate school to know? Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that it's not a competition. You don't have to be perfect. You shouldn't be comparing yourself to other people. And like, especially when you're first starting out in graduate school. So for me, when I was a master's student, almost everybody has imposter syndrome. Almost everyone feels like they're out of place, out of their depth, falling behind. It's probably not true. Um, you can't constantly compare yourself to other people. Like it's, it's your journey. And I think another important thing to keep in mind is you have to take care of yourself. So it's not, it can't just be research all the time. You have to, you know, take care of yourself mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, you know, make sure you're making time for your needs. And don't be embarrassed to reach out for help if you need it. Like that's perfectly normal. And almost everyone is happy to help you if you need that help. So. Thanks, Hannah. I think the first thing that you said about imposter syndrome is so important for graduate students to understand. Because I know from experience that if you get caught up in that loop, then it becomes difficult to ask for help. 
So mm-hmm. I'm really grateful that you that you mentioned that. I think it's important for graduate students and for those that are thinking about graduate school to understand that everybody has that on some level. So thank you. Can you uh, can you talk about your current work right now and and how it relates to West Virginia because it's here in West Virginia. So can you talk about the work and then what's most fulfilling about it? Yeah, so for my dissertation, I'm looking at long-term changes in bird communities, populations, and nest success in the Appalachian Mountains in relation to climate change and forest management. So for my dissertation, because of the NSF fellowship, I was able to dictate many of the elements of the research in collaboration with my co-advisors, Peter Wood and Chris Rota. And I definitely wanted to take advantage of the long-term data set that Petra had. So she had years of bird survey data, uh, mostly from the Monongahela National Forest, which is in West Virginia, from previous students, from technicians. And so I had access to a data set that went back to the early 1990s, which is, I think, a pretty rare thing. So I definitely wanted to take advantage of that and look at long-term trends because that's that can be so hard um, if you because the data just doesn't exist in most cases. And I wanted to tackle topics that would be relevant for bird conservation and management. So like climate change, forest management. So, and then one of the chapters, um, I actually was out collecting data myself in the the Monongahela National Forest. So I was continuing the long-term data set and visiting historic sites that had been visited previously again, going back to the 1990s. And then I was also collecting new data at new sites for one of my chapters. And so I spent three years from spring to summer doing that. And so all of that was in the Mon National Forest, all relevant to West Virginia. And from some of that data, actually, I just like just days ago published um, a paper about bird communities in red spruce forests in West Virginia. So looking at what species and, and, and overall bird communities are strongly associated with our red spruce forests, which had been something that hadn't been quantified before, really. So, Wow, congratulations, Hannah. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. What, what's your favorite part? You know, where do you feel like you're most fulfilled in doing this research? Yeah, that's a great question. The most fun part is probably being out in the field and and just, you know, being out with the birds and the forest and the wildlife. So you're because you're seeing much more than just birds, which by themselves is are amazing. But like there's black bears. I ran across a little mouse at one point, just along a trail. I found a blue crayfish. So just like the the kind of naturalist in me gets excited about being outside and just experiencing nature. But as, I guess, a scientist, the thing I like most is having results that can be applied. So these results that can be used directly by land managers and conservationists to directly guide management actions or conservation. And this was in part drilled into me from my time as an undergraduate student, because there's one professor who would always ask, what are the management implications of this research? So why are we doing this? How does this help? And that kind of really stuck with me. So, wow. So, so what do you plan on doing once you finish your PhD? What are your career goals? So the the dream goal is to be a federal research wildlife biologist. 
mm-hmm. um, working in a research station with either Forest Service or the Geological Survey. So I'd really like to do federal research. Uh, so would that be outside of West Virginia or could it still be in West Virginia? I am I am open to the possibilities. I definitely would not be opposed to staying in West Virginia, but I wouldn't be opposed to, you know, going where the jobs are just from a practical sense. That totally that totally makes sense to me. We're going to take a break for just a minute. Let's hear from WVU's Provost's Office of Graduate Education and Life. The Office of Graduate Education and Life is calling all doctoral students who would like to challenge themselves in competing in the 2022 three-minute thesis competition to submit their videos by February 18th. Cash prices are awaiting. Okay, welcome back. Thank you, Hannah, for talking with me. I'd like to move our conversation just a little bit right now. I noticed that you do something called Letters to a Pre-Scientist. There's a program. How did you become involved in that? And why do you stay involved even now as you're working on your PhD? Yeah, so I actually, I heard about it through Twitter, which is not what you would think from just, you know, social media. But I follow a lot of scientists on Twitter. And one of them had mentioned this, this cool new program that had just started, I think, within a few years and it's a pen pal program where you exchange letters with, I think, a middle schooler from like a disadvantaged area. So what you do as a scientist is you talk to them about yourself, who you are, what your journey was, how you became a scientist, and kind of open up their eyes and mind to what a scientist can be because we come in so many different you know, flavors. And so I thought that was really a really cool thing. So I signed up immediately after after I saw that. And I think like just personally, it's valuable because I didn't know about wildlife biology or wildlife biologists until I was a senior in high school and, you know, looking for college majors that would interest me. And then I, I stumbled across wildlife biology, but I did not know that was a career until late high school. And so if I could have had that chance to be exposed to that before, before that point, I would have left at that opportunity. So from a personal standpoint. Thanks, Hannah. Do you, do you correspond back and forth? Do the, do the middle schoolers get to write you back? Yeah. So it's um, a series of four rounds where you send a letter, they send a letter, you send a letter, they send a letter and it's snail mail. So it's physical, their handwriting, your handwriting, very old school. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hannah you are speaking to my love of writing this is so awesome what's been your favorite what's been one of your favorite exchanges that you've had with a middle schooler well I guess the my last pen we kind of bonded over a shared um, interest in drawing so he would send me drawings I would send him drawings he was really excited by the fact that I like pancakes And then, and then he also, he was very interested in Bigfoot and in several letters was asking me about Bigfoot in West Virginia. And I had to, I had to tell him I had not experienced any sign of Bigfoot. Oh, that's interesting that that kind of a myth reaches children outside of this area. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. So how many years have you been doing this now for? I started 
in as when I'm, I was a master's student, so that was 2017. Oh, wow. So you've been doing it for almost five years now. That's great. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about birding as a hobby? Because I understand that your research really focuses on conservation and birding communities. But can we talk about your hobby? Because let's face it, you've documented or you've seen at least 570 bird species in the U.S. So can you just talk about your hobby and how it became more than your work? And, and I'd also like to know, like, what's your favorite bird that you've ever seen? Yes, that's a good question. And funny enough, I didn't start off a birder. I wasn't initially that interested in birds. Um, so like as a child, I liked animals, but I was way more drawn to like what we call like the charismatic megafauna. So the big animals, usually mammals. So I was like all about cheetahs. That was and is my favorite animal ever. Wolves, lions, tigers, you know. The very, you know, sexy animals. So like even coming into college, I was all I was pretty pro mammals and I still am. But then I met, you know, other wildlife students who were kind of casual birders and you know invited me along to go birding with them. And I kind of dabbled in that. But then it was in a summer after sophomore year where I participated in a research for undergraduates research program in Kansas. And it was focused on birds. So I really got into birding through bird research initially, because once I got there, that was the furthest west I'd ever been at that point in my life. And so all of the birds were new, like I had no idea what they were. So it kind of like that excitement of, oh, what is that? And like trying to take a picture and trying to take field notes. It has a yellow belly. It has a brown head. Its bill is pretty thick. So just the the joy of discovery and learning i think that just really instilled a passion in in birding so going out and finding new birds and watching birds and their behavior figuring out i hear a song i don't see a bird what is that so just you know putting together the puzzle pieces and coming at a species identification and just learning was a really fun experience do you have a favorite bird hannah that's really tough because birds like I am now fully invested in birds um, <laughs> and like, they're all so cool. I will say like in like birder speak, my spark bird, which was the bird that really got me into it was probably my, was probably, and it, it's a weird name. So it's always awkward to say this, but it's called a dick sizzle. Oh, wow. It has that a weird name. What does it look like? Just out of curiosity. Uh, so it's it's kind of, it's in the sparrow family, but oh. it's a bit more colorful than like our usual drab brown sparrows. It does have yellow on a chest and black markings, kind of brown on the back. Of it. But it was my first like study species. So that was my first independent research project. That was the focal species for that project. And so I spent that summer just like, chasing around dixisles every day all day so like i i got it i grew very fond of them and so i think like that's what i would call my spark bird so what got me into it and will really introduce me to a love of, of birds that's wonderful what would you say you know since the birding goes back and forth between your work and your hobby what's been your favorite part of graduate school i guess kind of switching away from from hobbies and research it's actually the people. So especially like my fellow lab mates. So people who are also in the in the same lab as me have the same advice. And 
fellow graduate students in general in the in the department. I think the friendship and camaraderie that I have with them is probably the best part. Like I've always found, even as an undergrad, that graduate students in my field are some of the best people I know, like some of the most enjoyable, kindest, nicest people. And so like I, I'm of the opinion that even if you had the best advisor, the best research project, if you don't also have a supportive group of peers that are, you know, rooting for you along the way, like I don't think graduates graduate school would be a pretty miserable, lonely place without that. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, Hannah. For the for for our last question for the day, can you talk a little bit about how you avoid that? sense of competition because you said it's not a competition but you will always encounter people that want to make it a competition so how have you successfully it sounds like you've successfully avoided engaging in that way and having people around you that are supportive and you're supportive of them so what do you think is the one or two things that you've done to sort of move the rest of that out of the way i think you know viewing trying to find opportunities to collaborate so you're no longer in any sort of perceived competition with someone, you're working with them. So if you know you have someone who is working on a similar topic with, as you, instead of trying to rush your research and get it out before they do, I think it's much healthier and better for science to reach out to them and, and say, hey, we're working on a pretty similar thing. Let's work together. And I think that's just a much better mindset than trying to compete with them. Thank you for a great conversation, Hannah. You've given great tips to our graduate and undergraduate audience, and I love how you've turned birding into more than your research, even though it's an integral part of your research. I appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule to chat with me today about your work, about the letters to a pre-scientist program, and birding. And thank you to GradLife601's podcast audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join in next time to GradLife 601 Research and Beyond, when I'll be speaking with Dr. Christina Fattore, an associate professor with the Political Science Department in the John D. Rockefeller IV School of Policy and Politics at West Virginia University. Thank you all for joining us. And until next time, I'm Dr. Nancy Caronia. The Hazel Ruby McQuain Graduate Scholarship provides recipients with financial support for graduate study. More information about eligibility, benefits, and the application process can be found at graduateeducation.wvu.edu. Applications are due March 28th.